Okay, good morning. Uh, before I begin, at the beginning of the service um, this morning and then uh, before the just before the sermon started, uh, the elders have prepared a statement about Steve Mitchell, who, uh, that, which they wanted me to repeat for people who watch us online. And since some people watch the sermon and not the update and vice versa, we just wanted to repeat it. Uh, as you know, Steve is very ill uh, with COVID-19, double pneumonias in the hospital. Uh, he was um, struggling to breathe last night and had to be placed on a ventilator. And he was sedated some this morning uh, to assist him in um, the healing process. So the Mitchell family are very grateful to all of you for your prayers. This is the statement that they asked the elders to uh, prepare. And are grateful for all of, to all of you for your prayers for Steve. He is in need of them every day as Supriya and the rest of the family. Steve and the family want you to know that they have chosen to follow the course of treatment offered by the hospital that Steve requested to go to when the ambulance came to get him. They are first of all trusting in the Lord for Steve's recovery along with the treatments and care he is receiving from the hospital, doctors, and staff. This was not an easy decision to make considering all of the controversies surrounding the variety of remedies claiming to be effective in fighting this new and terrible virus. They asked that you would honor their choice and refrain from making further suggestions for his treatment. They know that these are not motivated by, they, they know that these are motivated by your love for Steve, but their effect is not helpful at this time. Please keep praying for the healing of his lungs and the restoration, restoring of his strength. So let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank you so much for your faithfulness. And we lift up to you our brother Steve and Supriya and Malia and the family that you would just uh, miraculously heal Steve and uh, restore him to uh, ministry. Keep him strong. Give him strength. Give those who are caring for him them wisdom uh, so that they will know what is best to do for him. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, I'm going to talk about don't be fooled. And someone suggested to me today, as you know, during the course of the year, I probably should put up a summary slide of the different things I have used for the zero, or the, for the O or zero. And I, the only thing I'm really grateful to right now for 2020 well, no, I'm grateful for a lot of things, but uh, 2020 has only been really good in the sense that uh, you can be kind of creative with the way you put up your slide for the date. Uh, so today, I've chosen, um, well, anybody know what I've chosen? Pomegranate. That's right. Now, it's, it's interesting that today, and the reason that someone suggested this to me, and I will let that person remain anonymous, um, but I thought, in thinking about it, it was a very good idea. Now, the interesting thing about the pomegranate is when you get a fruit, um, and I know that my wife will say, you don't know what a fruit is because you think a fruit is, you know, orange mango soda or something like that. Um, but in most cases, what you eat in the, in the fruit is you don't eat the seeds, you eat the flesh of the fruit, what's inside. The interesting thing is that there's really no flesh in a pomegranate. Pomegranate only has seeds, and the other interesting thing is that the pomegranate has 613 seeds, which seems like it doesn't, why? 
why did God design a fruit with 613 seeds? And the answer would be, well, why did he design rules, statutes for the nation of Israel that totaled, how many do you think it totaled? 613. And so the tradition, and, and this is, we're near the end of Rosh Hashanah, it ends at sunset today, uh, and so it should be close, getting close to sunset in Israel right now. And that will be the end of Rosh Hashanah, which is the first of the fall feast uh, in 10 days there will be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the period of time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is known as the Days of Awe. And we could go in, we could do a lot of teaching and that sort of thing on the significance of that and the significance of that in Bible prophecy, which I think is a very uh, real thing. That this is, these are important times. The Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, then following that, uh, Tabernacles, or Sukkot. But uh, the rabbi's tradition is that uh, they, they say that there are 613 seeds in each pomegranate, which is symbolic of the 613 mitzvah, or laws. Um, that's what they say. Now, I'm not sure that that's exactly accurate, but... Biblically, pomegranates back up or uh, pop up again in Scripture, and one of the places that they pop up is in Exodus, where they're given instructions about the ephod, the clothing garment that's to be worn by the high priest. Pomegranates are to be stitched into the uh, hem of that garment, and, be, and beneath, upon the hem of that, thou shalt make pomegranates of blue and of purple and of scarlet round about them, the hem thereof, and bells of gold between them round about. A golden bell and a pomegranate, and a and a pomegranate upon the hem of the robe roundabout. But I do think the rabbis that have taught this are onto something. Is that the seeds? You know, they they represent. They're considered to represent wisdom that comes from God, and it's a very interesting thing. So don't be fooled. We talk each week about the convergence of events and the things that are going on. And um, does anybody think there's been a few things happen in 2020? <laughs> uh, it's interesting, you know, I had sort of got my head around all the things that had happened with the signing of the Abraham Accords, and I will talk about that in a moment this week. And then Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And my... Facebook feed and emails and everything blew up because of that, because this is a very, um, this will have a very big impact on the election and more about that in just a moment. So we we sit here in this world, and I, I love these, these uh, covers from, I think they're back from 2011 now. I thought they would wear out their usefulness at some point. A world disrupted and can we fix this? And I think... They're probably more relevant now than they ever been. And also a reminder, uh, there is an app. If you're having trouble downloading it, you can, you can email me, and I'll try to get it to our tech support people, Remnant Truth Network. There is an app for it. There are podcasts that are being put up there. There are different teachings from different people, including myself. Uh, we're also experimenting with doing sort of a monthly uh, live Q&A 
Um, we did have a sort of a dress run or dress rehearsal for that the other night. So pray about that. It's just an alternative platform that a lot of people that are involved in ministry that you use that use YouTube know that eventually we're not going to be able to use it. So first, I want to talk a little bit about some things going on in the United States and our culture. And we're we're entering a very very difficult what's going to be a very difficult period of time. Uh, you are going to be inundated with propaganda. Even the Atlantic, which is a left-leaning publication, a left left-leaning publication, but I do think at times they are very honest in their journalism or their um, their and, and their opinions that you know where they're coming from. I think there are people that you could actually sit down and talk to about some things, but I think there are a lot of people that you really can't sit down and talk to these days. As you probably know, you end up screaming at each other. But The Atlantic has an article in its current, um, on its website right now, about computer-generated propaganda. And I think we're going to see things that over the next few weeks up until the election and after the election that are going to be very difficult to look at and determine whether this is real or not. Um, it will be, it, it's, I think it's going to be a rough period. I just don't see any other way, I, I don't see any way to sugarcoat it. And I'm quite concerned, but you're going to see a lot of inconsistency. So you might remember back when the George Floyd death occurred at the end of May that following that, the uh, Minneapolis City Council said they were going to defund the police. And you, I played a clip of an interview on CNN with this person, I forget her name, Lisa Bender or something like that, uh, talking about we're, we're going to reimagine the police, and this has been something that's been taking place all, all across the country. Well, now what has happened is that some crime has gone down, but there has been a very significant increase in the number of murders in the United States and cities across the country. Hardly a weekend goes by that there are not six, eight, 10, 12 people who are shot and killed uh, in Chicago. Uh, Minneapolis has seen a huge spike in killings. Baltimore, other cities, and in all these cities, though, where you seem to see these spikes, there has been the biggest push to defund the police, to reimagine the police. It's very clear that the people that are advocating this are insane, or evil, or both, insanely evil. And so here is now, with the increase in the crime in Minneapolis, the city council has now approached the police and said, why aren't you doing more? You're not even responding to 911 calls. And it's sort of like that's what you asked for, wasn't it? And I believe in the CNN, I think it was a CNN interview I played of this person who was head of the Minneapolis city council they said, well, what are you going to do when you call 911? What do you want to happen when you call 911? Oh, you know, send a social worker or something. These people are insane. Just absolutely insane. Now, 
The other night, Newt Gingrich was on one of the Fox News programs. Uh, what's her name? Harris Faulkner? And this is, I want to play for you the interview. So this is Newt Gingrich. Listen to what he talks about and what happens in the interview. I'm sure many of you have already seen this. Destroyed by this violence. Yeah, it's so true. They represent everybody, right? Speaker Gingrich, I know yeah. you have a final thought for us. Yeah, look, the number one problem in all... Now, I want to lead up to this. What they were talking about was this article from Axios, which is a left-leaning publication as well, a news, news a website. And $1 billion-plus riot damage is the most expensive in human in insurance history from non-weather-related causes. So this is what's been happening since the end of May. A billion dollars in property damage in cities across the United States is probably much higher than that. And so they were talking about that on this Fox News program, and here's what happened. Right, by this violence. Yeah, it's so true. They represent everybody, right? Speaker Gingrich, I know yeah. you have a final thought for us. Yeah, look, the number one problem in almost all these cities is George Soros-elected, left-wing, anti-police, pro-criminal district attorneys who refuse to pe keep people locked up. Uh, just yesterday, they put somebody back on the street who's wanted for two different murders in New York City. Uh, you cannot solve this problem, and both Harris and Biden have talked very proudly about what they call progressive district attorneys. Progressive district attorneys are anti-police, pro-criminal, and overwhelmingly elected with George Soros' money, and they're a major cause of the violence we're seeing because they keep putting the violent criminals back on the street. I'm not sure we need to bring George get Soros into this. <laughs> I was going to say you get the last word, he Speaker. <laughs> he, he, he paid for it. I mean, why can't we discuss the fact that millions no, of dollars he spent? I, I agree with well, Melissa. George Soros doesn't need to be a part of this conversation. Okay. So it's verboten. All right. We're going to... Okay, we're going to move on. Uh, a historic day at the White House. We covered it from stem to stem, stem to stern. For major change. In so that, that is what I would call awkward. <laughs> and that's, you know, what many people consider to be a conservative news source. Uh, this is deeply disturbing. Deeply disturbing. Because what Newt Gingrich said was the absolute truth. He wrote an uh, article for the Claremont Institute's American Mind. I'll summarize some of those things. Back in, I believe this was last year, uh, around December, this article appeared in the, uh, the strongly conservative, pro-Donald Trump New York Times. Soros adds intrigue and $800,000 to DA race backing progressive. Oh, uh, oh, that's the New York Times. How about this? Another article that Newt cited in his response was USA Today. New breed of prosecutors face police back, faces police backlash. An article about this guy who was elected as the 
uh, city attorney, deputy, uh, the prosecutor in San Francisco. The son of his parents were weather underground terrorists who were in prison. They had to be raised by someone else. So he got raised by Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. And there was a homeless person who had attacked a, a policeman and he had let the guy out on bail or didn't charge him and the police were upset about it and the USA Today reported on it. Oh, by the way, his campaign was largely funded by George Soros or one of his uh, organizations that he set up. Everybody knows that. It's undisputed fact. And the other interesting thing is, this, this article is from late February. I think February 28th of this year. Remember February 28th? still playing basketball and hockey and we're getting ready for the masters and there's some rumblings about some stuff going on in china uh you could go out to restaurants schools were open george floyd incident was three months away us today in the lower left hand corner you don't need to zoom in brian because i have a large version of it had a survey that they did in February, okay, I want you to get the timing on this. It said this. See down here in the lower left-hand corner? Here it is. U.S. adults on how likely they think the nation is to see public unrest this year. Answer, 46% fairly likely, 17% very. That's among the young 18 to 34s. Did they know something was coming? Were people planning this? Women, 61% fairly likely or very likely we were going to see public unrest this year. And this was before all of this stuff happened. And I think we need to, for, we kind of forget that. But there were other articles, another one that Newt cited, cited in his article at American Mind was a front page article from the New York or from the Los Angeles Times that was dated uh, May 24th, 2020. Putting money behind the campaigns. My goodness, who would it be putting, flipping prosecutors with an agenda liberal groups spend big on DA races? So here we have not only the pro Donald Trump New York Times, we have the really pro-Donald Trump LA Times. And they're not pro-Trump. They're not pro-law and order. And who is it that's funding this? Here's another little screenshot. My goodness, who is the guy there at the top? Big money up front. George Soros. Almost $20 million. And so my question becomes, what is wrong with, I have to choose my words carefully, because uh, whoever the producer was at Fox, I, I don't want to insult idiots and morons when I compare her to them. And here's a little, this is a, inside the fold, backers aim to reshape the justice system. 
This is published July 30th. DAs backed by Soros, other liberal activists join fray and cash with police. Now that's, that's I, where would that have been? That article, talking about Soros-funded, liberal, left-wing, Marxist, tear-down-the-system prosecutors that apparently Fox News will not allow anyone to talk about because this article came from Fox News. The article said this, district attorneys and current candidates who campaigns benefit the work of left-wing organizations, including ones backed by liberal billionaire George Soros, are now pushing for new practices that could see sharp reductions in prosecutors and incarcerations. Soros through the Justice and Public Safety Pact. This is Fox News, okay? So I would tell this producer who shut down the discussion, hey, Go read your own website. Do a little homework. It, it, what's troubling about this is that people are being duped by propaganda. Even the people who work for organizations that write about it, there's now this uh, fog <laughs> that's developed. And people are either being duped by propaganda, or worse, they're part of the propaganda machine. And as I said, we're the next seven weeks. Now, I take it back. The next period of time, <laughs> which will last how long, I don't know, will be unlike anything you've ever seen. Soros, that says, through this pack, has been spending millions of dollars on prosecutorial races in recent years with a number of beneficiaries making headlines since their elections, including St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, who was boosted by Soros in her campaign, drew controversy when she announced her office was bringing felony charges against Mark and Patricia McCloskey, the couple who brandished guns outside their home as protesters marched by in June. Well, they trespassed on their property in a mob. And I don't know if I've mentioned this before. This prosecutor, do you know how evil she is she should be impeached and removed from office the the gun they so they seized the gun that the lady was holding remember how she kind of she kind of held it like in every way that they tell you not to hold a gun you know <laughs> like this so they seized the gun and the gun didn't work and they're like you can't be charged with the felony if the gun doesn't work so you know what she did she wrote an email to the people in the police evidence room and said Reconstruct the gun so it works. That is a felony. The, um, so this is, you can find that article at American Mind at the Claremont Institute, the Soros cover-up by Newt Gingrich. I highly recommend it. Another publication I highly recommend, the American Mind. Um, City Journal, maybe the Wall Street editorial page. Not a lot of places. You really got to dig. But you can usually, you can even find the truth when you read different things. Um, and Newt's article is, 
is spot on. Boy, we are in trouble. Don't be fooled by it. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed on to her reward, justice. It's very hard. Um, you know, she's this uh, little lady, petite, small, soft-spoken. And she was a wrecking ball, in my view, on everything that is good and righteous and just. She wasn't in favor of the Constitution. She wanted to tear it down. She didn't, she didn't care about baby, babies. She supported abortion. She didn't care about traditional marriage. She supported same-sex marriage. It was interesting. There's a lot of response. The Washington Post, this is their editorial, this is their headline. This is the headline that they had for Justice Scalia six years ago, who was a friend of Justice Ginsburg. Ginsburg. Do you see the difference? A pioneer devoted to equality. And when Scalia dies, Supreme Court conservative dismayed liberals. Well, that's fair and balanced reporting, right? I mourned when Scalia died. I'm not mourning today. I'm sorry. The reaction to this, there's a makeshift memorial outside the Supreme Court. Process what's going on here. This lady who supported the abortion of at least 34 to 50 million unborn children. And look at these people. What is going on? At least they're gathering so you can identify the large groups of people who have lost their mind. Reza Aslan, who used to be at CNN, you remember the guy who ate the brains on camera? In a, I'm not kidding you. Go look it up. Let me clarify something, too. Um, somebody pushed back on this. I talked about a young uh, student maybe a week or two ago, uh, who had been uh, threatened with expulsion from school because of what he put up about Black Lives Matter. And I didn't have time to pull the clip together. Uh, that student went to Bakersfield Christian School in California. Now, what he actually put up, I, I don't remember the one thing that he put up, but you can dig around the internet and you can find it because it's out there. And I don't know the student's name. And he received hundreds of death threats. And I had somebody, you know, question me like, well, you didn't do very good research on this student. And I would say, yeah, I did. <laughs> Actually talked to somebody very, very familiar with the situation, personally familiar with the situation. And I knew exactly what the sign was that the kid put up. The kid put up a sign on the Zoom thing in a class that said, black lives don't actually matter. 
Now, there's one way of interpreting that is it's just awful what he said. That's terrible. But I would suggest that you go and you find the interviews that Attorney General William Barr did over the past week. He spoke at Constitution Day at Hillsdale University on Constitution Day, and his speech was tremendous. And in this, and in one of the interviews, it might have been in the Q&A after, but he was, he was in a number of forums this week. He said this, listen, and I'm, I'm going to try to quote him exactly. Black lives don't actually matter to Black Lives Matters. They don't care about the people being shot in Chicago every weekend that are largely black. So to ever who wrote that, I did do my research, and I know exactly what this kid said, and I will say, Attorney General William Barr believes the same thing, because to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her ilk, black lives don't actually matter. Millions and millions of black babies have been terminated by these monsters. And I don't care if she wears a nice little lace thing around her black robes. And uh, if you don't like it, you can write. We've, I've set up a new email account that uh, complains at weongotgonnareadit.com uh, if you want to send me a complaint about what I said. So um, I would say rather than suggesting I need to do some research, um, apply your criticism to yourself. Here's Reza Aslan. Here's what he said about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. If they try to replace RBG, we burn the entire F thing down. How many of you know who Jen Hatmaker is? I think she and her husband had a renovation show on HGTV. She's been a darling of evangelical, so-called evangelical square, scare quotes, scare quotes, scare quotes around evangelical women's conferences. I think it was announced last week that she and her husband are getting divorced. I want you to, I'm going to read what she said about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is a lady who claims to be a Christian. <clears throat> With a deep, deep bow, I honor this absolute legend. Speaking of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she blazed the very trails we walk on today. I cannot say this with more sincerity. Well done, good and faithful servant. You fought the good fight and you finished your race. Enter into your rest, dear sister. What a profound use of her earthly days until the very end. This was a true public servant, the likes of which we rarely see. May we take the baton and we run our leg of the race with half the grit and faithfulness. Um, I don't know what uh, to say about that except if, if, if you want to know what Romans 1 was really talking about, when it said that people would be given over to reprobate mind, because Hatmaker's a big supporter of same-sex marriage, by the way. Um, 
you know, look, pray for salvation. <laughs> pray for, you know. The interesting thing, the, so these were bad responses. Hers is just bad on so many theological levels, it's not even, it's hard to describe. Riza Aslan was bad. But I saw people scream. I can't play the clips of them. Because it would just be a one long beep. I can't believe she died. I can't believe 2020 could get worse, but now, baby! And people post this <laughs> for the world to see. But the most, as I look through some of the threads on Twitter where this, you know, people said, uh, she was terrible. She was a horrible judge in terms of traditional values. And then somebody would say, I hope that she accepted the Lord before she died. And the vitriol that was given in response to those people who were concerned about her salvation was off the charts. We are in uncharted territory. So you guys see a lot of stuff about her over there. Don't be fooled. You're not, the stuff about her. At the core, she was horrible for our political system and traditional values. And it's reported that on her deathbed, this has been reported by NPR and some others, and her granddaughter, that her deathbed wish was no replacement until the new president. Now, I don't know if that's true. Tucker Carlson, he doesn't believe that anybody would, would say that. And I would say... I think she, I, I don't doubt that she maybe said that. There's also another good article, American Mind. I haven't even got to the Middle East yet. <clears throat> but now we're rolling. Now the intro is over. <clears throat> the Coming Coup by Michael Anton, who worked in the uh, Trump administration for a while. Democrats are laying the groundwork for a revolution right in front of our eyes. And I want you to be aware that this is what's going on. And I'll explain, and this is what Michael Anton says, is if 2020 were not insane enough already, we now have Democrats and their ruling class masters openly talking about staging a coup. You might have missed it, but with, with the riots, lockdowns, and other daily mayhem we're forced to endure in this, the most wretched year of my lifetime. But it's happening. It started with the military brass quietly indicating that troops should not follow a presidential order. They were bolstered by many former generals, including President Trump's own first Secretary of Defense, who stated openly what the brass would only hint at. Then as nationwide riots really got rolling in early June, the sitting Secretary of Defense himself all but publicly told the President not to invoke the Insurrection Act. His implicit message was this, Mr. President, don't tell us to do that because we won't, and you know what happens after that. The Secretary of Defense. All this enthused Joe Biden, who threw subtlety to the winds. The former U.S. Senator and Vice President has not once but twice, not twice, but thrice, conf confidently asserted that the military will escort Trump from the White House with great dispatch should the President refuse to leave. This is what they're doing. And I talked about, I think I talked about this here, that they're creating this narrative about what's going to happen with the election and the aftermath of the election. And I think what Anton has to say is very good. Now he says this, one might dismiss such comments as the ravings of a dementia patient and a has-been who never got over his own electoral loss. Speaking of 
Biden. But before you do, consider also this. Over the summer, a story was deliberately leaked to the press of a meeting at which 100 Democratic um, grandees, anti-Trump former Republicans, and other ruling class apparatchiks got together on George Soros' time, by the way. Um, nope, nobody's telling me not to talk about that. <laughs> to game out various outcomes of the 2020 election. One such outcome was a clear Trump win, and that eventuality, former White, Bill Clinton White House Chief of Staff John Podesta, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this before, playing Biden refused to concede, pressured states that Trump had won to send Democrats to the formal electoral college vote and trusted that the military would take care of the rest. That was one of the scenarios that they played out. In fact, there was a Tom Fitton at um, Judicial Watch and some others. This is what was released. This was a war game that they did back in early August, preventing a disrupted presidential election and transition. And they had four different scenarios that they went through. And this is what Anton says about the report. And I apologize for reading it a lot, but I think what Anton wrote... Uh, is worthy of this. The leaked report from the exercise darkly concluded that a technocratic, that technocratic solutions, courts, and reliance on elites observing norms are not the answer here. Promising that what would follow the November election would be, quote, a street fight, not a legal battle, unquote. Some, like Byron York, seem to be dismissive of what took place, Oh, it was just a little war game. And I like Byron York. Back to the article. So why are the Democrats publicly talking about this conspiracy? Because they, need, they know that for it to succeed, it must not look like a conspiracy. They need to plant the idea in the public mind now that their unlawful and illegitimate removal of President Trump from office will somehow be his fault. Never mind the pesky detail that the president would refuse to leave only if he were convinced he legitimately won. And Hillary Clinton telling Biden, do not concede under any circumstances. The second part of the plan is either to produce enough harvested ballots, lawfully or not, to tip close states or else dispute the results in close states and insist no matter what the tally says that Biden won them. The worst case scenario for the country, but not for the ruling class, would be results in a handful of states that are so ambiguous and hotly disputed that no one can rightly say who won. Of course, that will not stop the Democrats from insisting that they won. The third piece is to get the vast and loud them left propaganda machine ready for war. They leaked the, that leaked report exhorted Democrats to identify key influencers in the media and among local activists who can affect political perceptions and mobilize political action, who could establish pre-commitments to playing a constructive role in the event of a contested election, i.e. blaring from every rooftop that Trump lost. At this point, safe to assume that unless Trump wins in a blowout that can't be overcome by cheating or denied by the ruling class massive propaganda operation, that's exactly what every Democrat will want. And he concludes with this. For the rest of us, the most important thing we can do is raise awareness that there is a conspiracy to remove President Trump from office, even if he wins. They're telling you about it precisely to get you ready for it, so that when it happens, you won't think it was a conspiracy. You'll blame the president. And he concludes with this. Don't be fooled.
I heard an interview earlier this week with Paul Kinger, who wrote this new book called The Devil and Karl Marx. Now, Richard Warmbrandt from um, The Voice of the Martyrs wrote a book about Karl Marx's background about 30 or so years ago. Kinger kind of updates it and brings in some new things I think uh, further research have found. Marx lived in, and he was interviewed, by the way, on Frank Gaffney's Secure Freedom Radio on Monday or Tuesday. Just go to Secure, just Google Secure Freedom Radio, go to the podcast and find Paul Kinger, who was interviewed this week, a whole hour, well worth your time. And he wrote this book before the Black Lives Matter thing and all the things were happening with that, but it's a very relevant book. It, it almost sounds prophetic. But he was talking about, look, Karl Marx, he grew up in the city in Germany where Constantine's mother, Helena, had constructed the church. She was the one who uh, constructed the original Church of the Holy Sepulchre and the Church of the Nativity in Israel. Um, Constantine built at sites that were important to the historical Christianity, just like Herod, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, built at sites that were important to historical Judaism. We'll talk about one of those in a few moments. But what he also said was that the people that Marx associated with, while he couldn't say that Marx himself was a Satanist, everyone around him who was giving him these ideas at the university were active practice Satanists, active practicing Satanists, and Karl Marx's own father told him, Karl, you have a special demon in you. And so when you look at Black Lives Matter, because what Karl Marx wanted to do was tear everything down and rebuild his utopian society, his ideal utopian society on the ruins of what he had destroyed. That's exactly what Black Lives Matter wants to do. To them, black lives don't actually matter. They want to tear down society. They want to tear down the family. I've read you what's in their manifesto, and now we see the founding members are into African spiritism, witchcraft, and, and demon worship. Look it up. It's a fact. They give interviews on it. They don't even try to hide it. And all these pastors are running around posting stuff on their Facebook and Twitter, BLM, BLM. Look, at the, black lives do matter, okay? I agree, 100%, I agree with that. All lives matter. Because eternity matters. Would that we could have Ruth Bader Ginsburg testify to us today But we know people wouldn't do that. Jesus, when he was confronted with it, he said, even if somebody comes back from the dead, you're not going to believe them. But uh, this, is, this is evil and this is demonic, what's going on. It's tearing down the system. Uh, and we're pretty deep into this. I don't know what the out is. I do know that uh, I can only report to you on what's happening. So now let's turn to the Middle East and we'll talk a few, little bit about uh, what's going on in the Middle East this week? Well, not only in the Middle East, but in Washington, D.C., where we had these 
leaders, foreign ministers, and prime minister from Israel, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates come to the White House for a signing, seri signing ceremony of the historic Abraham Accords. Here's a little bit of the welcoming ceremony of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. And I'm going to play a little bit of a clip as they go into the Oval Office and sit down and uh, Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu talk a little bit. Trump first gives a presentation of a golden key to uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. And here's what it happened. Given by myself and the First Lady to uh, Prime Minister and the First Lady of Israel. And it's a uh, key to our country and to our hearts. And you've been amazing for a long period of time. And this is, this is in many respects, the big, because this is something that's special left UAE and Bahrain to meet outside in a ceremony and it's just a very important event and it's an honor to have you with us baby thank you very much thank you mr. president and I have said and this is true that you have the key to the hearts of the people of Israel because all of all the great things you've done for the Jewish state and the Jewish people so thank you thank, thank you. you very much fantastic and we look forward to being outside yes please Any great events, and these are tremendous changes. Can you know that Israel is getting a lot? What is Israel giving back? For this, this is the Israeli to press that wants to chip away at this. Will you promote one country? Israel is getting, and what we're all getting, but what Israel is getting more than anything else is peace. Uh, they're going to have peace. Uh, as you know, UAE, United Arab Emirates, is a great warring nation a very powerful nation in the region, and uh, they very much wanted to do this. Mohammed's a tremendous leader, like this leader, and it was important to have them uh, first very early. And, uh, you know, the relationship is fantastic, and a lot of people are surprised to see it. And as you know, we have Bahrain, and we have uh, many nations ready to follow, uh, many mm -hmm. nations. I can't. I, no, not now. I won't. But but you'll see. I, we'll be signing up other nations, and these are very strong agreements. These are very strong. This is really peace. This is serious peace. And uh, so I think what Israel gets, uh, the most important thing that they're getting by far is peace. Excuse me, one at a time. In the white. Go ahead. Well, we'll be announced. Yeah, we, we're very far down the road with about five countries, five additional countries. Frankly, I think we could have had them here today. We thought out of respect, uh, UAE, they deserved it. And Bahrain came immediately after. They really wanted to do it. Uh, but we'll have at least five or six countries coming along very quickly. And we're already talking to them. And they want to see peace. You know, they've been fighting for a long time. They're tired. They're warring countries, but they're tired. They're tired of fighting. And uh, so you're going to be seeing uh, further announcements. Uh, this is a, you know, it's a very big day. I guess they said, so there were two countries over a 72-year period. And we did an additional two. And these are great countries. We did an additional two in one month. 29 days. But, you'll, uh, but you're going to see, you're going to see a lot of 
very great activity. It's going to be peace in the Middle East. Should Israel, should Israel feel less isolated today than they were this last week? And Mr. Prime Minister, maybe you can answer that question as well. Well, I think Israel's not isolated anymore because I can tell you we have the two countries, plus you had an additional two, as you know, from many, many years ago. And now you have a situation where many of the countries, and I can actually say most of the countries, but many of the countries in the Middle East want to sign this deal. Well, and then, of course, these were the headlines. Everywhere you look, there were headlines about a new era of economic possibilities. Peace be upon all. Shalom, salam. All of these things were uh, coming about. Here's Prime Minister, as they went out uh, to the um, south portico of the White House, they all each gave a little speech, President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu, and then the, lead, the foreign ministers of Bahrain and UAE. Here's what, just a short clip of what Prime Minister Netanyahu had to say. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. President, this day is a pivot of history. It heralds a new dawn of peace. For thousands of years, the Jewish people have prayed for peace. For decades, the Jewish state has prayed for peace. And this is why today we're filled with such profound gratitude. I am grateful to you, President Trump, for your decisive leadership. You have unequivocally stood by Israel's side. You have boldly confronted the tyrants of Tehran. You've proposed a realistic vision for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. And you have successfully brokered the historic peace that we are signing today, a peace that has brought support in Israel, in America, in the Middle East, indeed in the entire world. Now, um, this is what uh, took place during the ceremony. Um, laser projections on the wall of the old city in Jerusalem. Uh, they did something similar when we were there three years ago to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Six-Day War, victory in the Six-Day War in 1967. Uh, Caroline Glick, uh, there are a lot of reactions to it. A good one is Caroline Glick and Israel Hayom. Uh, the title of her article is A Tale of Two White House Signing Ceremonies. And what Caroline looks at is the, the ceremony that happened back on September 13th, actually the, the anniversary of which took place uh, just a week ago today, uh, right just before the, that was September 13th, the signing ceremony on this one took place on September 16th. And you remember the sort of forced handshake that Clinton kind of shoved uh, uh, Prime Minister Rabin and Yasser Arafat together to shake hands. You'll see there's Mahmoud Abbas from 27 years ago. Um, and we had the you know, similar signing ceremonies. Caroline says this, we wanted a new Middle East and we got a new Middle East. In September of 2020 though, not, then, not Oslo in September of 1993, or those bloody days in the 1990s when they threw sand in our eyes and told us the path to peace runs through a Palestinian state and numerous withdrawals from the land of our forefathers while the buses exploded in the background. The various Nobel Peace Prizes that were handed out, including the Yasser Arafat, couldn't conceal the bluff either. 
The State of Israel on Tuesday signed a historic peace deal with the United Arab Emirates, the most progressive country in the Arab world today, and with its Persian Gulf neighbor Bahrain, a very close ally of Saudi Arabia. You'd have to be truly naive not to understand that Saudi Arabia gave this treaty its blessing and even could be close to joining as well as it hammers the final nails into the coffin of the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative. Look, this is all very uh, significant stuff that took, that, that's taking place. I do think it has prophetic implications. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that this is the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. But the reaction to it and, and the things, the statements that President Trump and, and Prime Minister Netanyahu made, this isn't just peace for the Middle East. This is peace for the whole world. Do you hear what they're saying? And, and so, look, <laughs> I love peace. <clears throat> well, when I have a legal case, I'll say I love peace when, you know, the litigation is over and all the legal bills are paid. But I'm being facetious there, of course. But, but we all love peace, and peace is a good thing. And so we can support peace. We also have to think about the prophetic implications of these things. And I mentioned that a little bit over the past few weeks. Here's an article in the Jerusalem Post, a sea change for Israel's place in the world. And people are attacking it. You saw um, the things that were said. Uh, remember Prime Minister Netanyahu in the Oval Office said, yeah, look at this, this is the Israeli press. They're trying to chip away on this great moment uh, as we sit here. So this is... Uh, a uh, article that is in Friday's Jerusalem Post. Of course, it's Rosh Hashanah, uh, the end of Rosh Hashanah today, so there's no uh, Israeli newspapers being published today. But here's an interview with uh, Jared Kushner. Now, early in the week, Jared Kushner gave an interview to the Times of Israel. And look, there's a lot of controversy now between people like me who do prophecy updates and others who do prophecy updates and there's a group of us who are very concerned about what we see going on and the prophetic implications of that. And there are others who say, this is great. Don't worry about it. Don't be nervous. I'm not nervous about anything. Okay? I just want that to be on the record. But I am looking at the implications of what is going on here. And I think they are very serious. And I think they need to be talked about, not dismissed. Um... And, and so, and, and I agree with those who say that ultimately this divides land. And, and to, to figure that out, you only need to listen to Jared Kushner. Because we stopped the annexation, annexations off the table till 2024. That's where they would ex exercise sovereignty over parts of the Jordan Valley and Judea and Samaria. And the United Arab Emirates guy says, yeah, that's off the table. So we're fine with that. At least it's off the table for now. We'll deal with it when it comes up again, if it comes up again. And listen, ultimately what these things do is they divide up the land of Israel. I'm sorry if you disagree with that. That's fine, okay? I still love you. But I think we have to be realistic. And Jared Kushner says this is to bring about a two-state solution. Now, either he's lying or he doesn't know what he's talking about, but I think it is to bring about a two-state solution. Here's, he was interviewed by Judy Woodruff on NPR. Here's a little bit of that. 
Well, I was referring to unofficial relations between these countries, that they had never fought a war with one another. But speaking of economic opportunity, left out of this deal are the Palestinians. More than five million people living in the crowded uh, territories uh, with very little economic opportunity for them, uh, a chance to advance uh, hopes for their children. Is the plan here to try to isolate the Palestinians so then they have to come on board? No, the Palestinians have isolated themselves. Our plan has been to do practical things to slaughter the sacred cows that have held back progress for a long time and just uh, to, to take a very pragmatic approach to bring things forward. President Trump on his first foreign trip, I don't know if your viewers know, he laid out his strategy when he went to Riyadh and he spoke to the 54 Muslim and Arab countries, uh, the leaders of them, and basically said if we want to move forward we need to bring the region together around common interests. I need you all to take more responsibility. At the time ISIS was running rampant. Uh, they had a caliphate the size of Ohio. Iran uh, was, was destabilizing by funding proxies all over the region and there was a lot of bad things happening in the Middle East in terms of funding of terror and uh, radicalizing the next generation. We reversed a lot of that. We've destroyed the territorial caliphate of ISIS. Uh, we got out of the horrible Iran deal which probably was one of the worst deals ever made and we've stopped a lot of the funding that's gone to the terror groups that were threatening America and destabilizing the region. With regards to the Palestinians, we got Israel to put on the table the most detailed proposal that's ever been put forward uh, in history. We put out 180 pages. Uh, it had an economic plan that took $50 billion that would have created a million new Palestinian jobs, uh, doubled their GDP, and reduced their poverty rate by 50%. Uh, and that would have made a big difference. We also got Israel to agree to a Palestinian state and to put forward a map. So uh, there's been a lot of progress that's been made for them. But at the end of the day, we can't want peace more than they want peace. And again, you know, their leadership has a perfect track record of not making a deal. So when they're ready to come forward, President Trump has shown that he can make deals in the Middle East, that he's built strong relations with people who felt isolated from America before he came into power. And I think that there's a tremendous amount of potential for the Palestinians if we all work together. Well, the one interesting thing was the voices that you didn't hear from was... Uh, People that oppose President Trump mainly, uh, Nancy Pelosi said something like, well, this is just a, distract and f a distraction from the virus. Um, John Kerry, who said, you'll never get any Arab country to come on board unless you have a Palestinian state, didn't hear him say anything this week. Um, he's probably sailing at Martha's Vineyard or something, or Nantucket, wherever he sails. Uh, but, you know, and look, you didn't see anybody from the left of the spectrum i mean i thought everybody wanted peace right do they maybe not want peace i think what they really don't want is they don't want a jewish state in israel a jewish state of israel that's what they really don't want um palestinians of course this is uh sort of a graphic uh, picture that shows what how the palestinians reacted and this article from the jerusalem post uh, failing to see the writing on the wall, the Palestinian leadership has placed itself on a collision course with many Arab countries, and the situation may not approve. Boy, it may not. Now, I think there may be a prophetic aspect to this that people are overlooking, though, because there has been some resolution between, at least on the surface, between Israel and some of the Arab states, and more to come. I think President Trump is probably accurate. Um, I don't know if they'll get to the whole 22 number that he wanted to get to, but certainly they think there are five or six that are going to come. But um, 
this article here says that, listen, what happened now is this is sort of like the nail in the coffin of the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative. And I'll just quote from the article. So the Arab Peace Initiative was Saudi-led back in 2002. It proposed a two-state solution. Uh, but what the Palestinians didn't like about that was what? It proposed a two-state solution, <laughs> one of which was Israel. They couldn't tolerate that. And so they felt back then that they had been betrayed by the Saudis and the others who joined in on the Arab Peace Initiative. Because ultimately what they want is they don't want any, any state of Israel. So it says this, in 2002, the Arab leaders held a summit in Beirut and announced the Arab Peace Initiative, a 10-sentence proposal for an end to the Arab-Israeli conflict. The initiative calls for normalizing relations between the Arab world and Israel in exchange for a full withdrawal by Israel to the pre-67 lines, a just settlement of the Palestinian refugee problem based on United Nations Resolution 194 and the establishment of a Palestinian state with East Jerusalem as its capital. Former Palestinian Authority President Yasser Arafat immediately embraced the initiative as successor Mahmoud Abbas also supported it. But some Palestinians saw the Arab peace plan as the turning point in the Arab world's attitude towards the Palestinian issue in Israel. It was the first time that Arab heads of state talked about the possibility of normalization with Israel, though they had conditioned it on a full withdrawal to the pre-1967 lines and the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. And it's very interesting. So that happened 18 years ago. And now all of a sudden here in 2020, peace is breaking out in many quarters. In the midst of a, a world that's disrupted, to say the least. But there might be a prophetic aspect to this. And for this I have to go back, and if you want to look up a teaching I did, or a prophecy update, I called it, Why Hebron, Matter, Why Hebron Matters, back in 2017. I think it was in June or July after we got back from Israel. <coughs> and uh, one of the places we went on that trip was we went to Hebron, we went to Mamre, we went to the ancient tell at, 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 um, at Hebron. Uh, and this is an aerial view of the tell at Hebron and you see some of the modern city, which is the most divided city you've ever seen. You have this um, Herodian structure there. Herod built at four places. He built uh, structures to commemorate what happened at Mamre. What happened at Mamre, that's where Herod got the promise of a son. who eventually redeemed the world. It would come through his line. He built here at Hebron, which is where Abraham, Sarah, and then Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Leah are buried. And I think this is a very solid historical site. It's, it exists today pretty much as it was. It existed 2,000 years ago when it was built. Uh, the lower part of the structure, this is probably what it looked like at the time of Jesus. Stood through earthquakes and everything. It's an amazing thing. This is what it looked like at the 50th anniversary of uh, the Six-Day War. But there's a very interesting article in the Jerusalem Post on Friday that may pick up on some of the prophetic aspect of this, titled, Biblical Scenes Are Playing Out Before Our Eyes. And what he talks about is that there was this been this ages, centuries, millennia-long 
unresolved conflict between the sons of Ishmael, the father of the Arab people, and the son, and and uh, the offsprings of Isaac and Jacob. And uh, so this is what the article says. Despite the rift between the two brothers, the Bible makes it clear that this feud will not last forever. When Abraham passes away, the Bible relates this. Well, in fact, I'll just read you the verse. It says this. This is from um, Genesis chapter 25, verse 8. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, you know, Ishmael who had been cast out, his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. And so what, um, well, I'll just read from the article. Um, let's see. The Abraham Accords was the perfect title for this event, which proves that the developments we are experiencing with the establishment, development, and success of the state of Israel are not only historic, but also fulfillments of biblical prophecies. Because what the way... Jewish people look at eschatology as patterns. So something that happened in the past will be recapitulated in the future. So what happened in the past is actually a prophecy of what's going to happen in the future. And this is very true with the book of Genesis. Many believe, and I tend to agree with this, that the book of Genesis is the whole narrative is ultimately prophecy that will be fulfilled. And so you have this story. What happens, you see, and this story is that Ishmael and Isaac are reconciled. And the statement is, the belief is, that that's a prophecy that eventually the sons of Isaac, the descendants of Isaac, and the descendants of Ishmael will be reconciled. And so there are some in Israel that are saying, listen, this this is fulfilling Bible prophecy that there is this reconciliation taking place. Now, it's done in a context of a lot of things. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to play this. This is Ephraim Halavi, who is the former head of the Mossad. And he was talking about, listen, there could be some problems with this, um, this peace agreement. You know, we, we've been doing a lot of these things in the background, and now it's public, and everybody's going to really—it's going to get a lot more scrutiny now that we're doing things publicly. So that could cause some very serious problems in the future. And he's a Mossad guy, so he's probably oriented to wanting to do things in secret. Um, there was a. Somehow my. Oh, here it is. Here's a little interview between Yishel Fleischer, who is the uh, Jewish rabbi in Hebron, uh, very knowledgeable at Hebron. He's a settler himself. He's interviewing Mordecai Kadar, who sort of references a little bit about this prophecy. So this is just a short part of his interview from a couple weeks ago. Here we go. It'll start here, I promise. Um, the, the name of the, treat, of the uh, uh, upcoming treaty with the UAE 
has been called the Abraham Accords. Now for us, for Israelis, this term I think is a big win because one of the efforts to undermine Israel has been to paint it as a white European colonialist. Now the minute that you use the term Abraham Accords, you are reminding people we, the Jews and the Arabs, are the children of Abraham. And you're putting us on an even plane that we are a Semitic people, we are a regional people, a tribal peoples, all of us here, and that we have this kind of relationship. So for me, where I work in Hebron, uh, at the Jewish community of Hebron, the tomb of the patriarchs and matriarchs there, Abraham is buried there, and Arabs and Jews both understand this is our forefather, this is the, the Abraham that, that kind of brings us all together. Is this term a term that's real in the Arab minds? Uh, around the region. Can they accept that we too are the children of Abraham? Uh, even the Iranian uh, 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 Iranian uh, Khomeini, Khomeini, right? What's his name? Is he a mullah? What is he? Is he, uh, I forgot the, the, the proper title for him. The, the Ayatollah, that's right. The Ayatollah, I'm sorry. The Ayatollah Khomeini recently wrote that one of our enemies is the, the children of the these children in the Quran, the children of Israel, Bani Israel, and he, he basically legitimized the idea that we are the original uh, Jewish people, the children of Abraham. And I wanted to ask you, is this a useful terminology when we use the term Abraham Accords? Or is this just for the Western ears, uh, a useful one, you know, for the Christian evangelicals thinking we're the children of Abraham? Who really benefits from this term? Well, definitely, if, if you say that you are just like them, the descendants of Abraham, you actually declare that you are Ibn al-Balad means the son of this place, the son of the country, means they are not the only ones, we are also. Mm -hmm. However, uh, those who oppose us keep saying that we Jews of today are not real Jews because we are the descendants of the Khazars or the Khuzars who converted to Judaism, they are Europeans, that's why we don't look like them. This is uh, significant because they're sort of acknowledging that we're sons of Abraham too. This is a big deal. Uh, because I think how this thing unfolds prophetically is that ultimately there's a recognition of Israel's right to be there. That's part of this whole process. And I think this is a big step down that road. So I do think it has prophetic significance, but not yet fulfillment. But I'm also concerned about some of the nature of it. And, and the one thing that was interesting about this is, even though some of us are concerned about this, uh, because we know how this unfolds, we're, we're not concerned that God's prophecies are being fulfilled or will be fulfilled, but we know that there are very serious implications for people who don't turn to the Lord in this time frame. Okay? Like, we're, we were concerned, a lot of us were concerned about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Did she turn to the Lord? And of course, that's met with abject hatred. Like the sign I saw somebody carrying in a protest this week in California. Get God out of California. Well, I think it already may have happened. Although people are trying to bring it back, and we're grateful for that. But some of the things, like the symbology now... I don't know that the leaders that designed this thing looked at this, but there was one of these temple coins put out. 
And look at the significance of it. Of course, you have the one on the Abraham Accord, and it sort of shows the city of uh, Dubai melding into the city of Jerusalem. So those are things that you see around Jerusalem. And so there's, there's a lot of symbols there. Um, there's a little closer version of it. Though on the back side of this, this is kind of an interesting thing. This is, you know, this is a sword. Here's what it looks like on the front. And it has President Donald Trump's signature there. And this sword, you know, see how the sword, we know the prophet, the, the statement that the swords will be beaten into plowshares, but look what happens to this sword. It goes into technology. You see here, you see medicine, because the vaccine for the coronavirus is part of this. You see the zeros and ones for technology, space, a space shuttle. And then there are these verses on here. There's this uh, passage from... Um, the Quran. Here's another thing. See how the thing melts, morphs into you've got the little symbol for Wi-Fi, a space shuttle, a dove, and onto the planets as to what's going to happen. You have a quotation from the Quran, and you also have a quotation from the passage in Jeremiah, and I'm going to forget where the passage is in Jeremiah right now. I think I might remember. Let's see if I have it right. No, wrong. This is what happened. I mean, there's so much going on this week. I apologize. It's just almost impossible to pick up on. It's hard to get these things done. Uh, believe me. Okay, one more passage here. Sorry about that. I think maybe it's Jeremiah 15. Verse 14. No. I'm missing it. It's, it's in Jeremiah, and it talks about peace, but it also talks about lying prophets in the, in the same passage. It's a very weird choice of a verse. And then, of course, you have the Quranic verse that's located up here at the top, and then it's English is down here, and if one inches, if one inclines towards peace, it inclines towards you. So very interesting symbology there, but there's also this uh, economic aspect of what's going on. Uh, UAE, UAE Israel trade and investment prospects are exciting, and then there's this religious component too. This is a video from the uh, uh, from Dubai. This is where the Pope went. He signed this accord. This is supposed to be open in 2022. It's called the House of All Faiths, or the Abraham House of All Faiths. And so what they have there is they have this mosque that they're building. They have a church. Uh, they have a synagogue. And you can see how the this is the architectural rendering video that's been done to show what it looks like with the sun shining the different times of the day of the sun and everything and what it's going to look like. So here's the mosque that they have. And then you're going to see the church and... I don't know if I'll play it all the way through, but um, here's the church. And this is where the Pope went to sign this uh, all-face agreement. And then there's also a uh, synagogue that they're going to have. And this is what it looks like at night.
has a very kind of unique spiritual feel to it, I think. And here's what it looks like. And then they have it uh, lit up as it'll be lit up at night. Uh, and so this is the area where the Pope went to uh, sign this accord. Very interesting thing. But this, so there's this, this is, you know, sort of bringing these religions together. This is the thing that concerns me about it. Now, will Saudi Arabia come on? There was a front page article in yesterday's Wall Street Journal about the Saudi royal family divides over future ties with Israel. King Salman, he's old school, Arab Peace Initiative, two-state, protect the Palestinians. The word is that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman says, listen, when I'm king, we'll sign this thing. Um, is there going to be a coup? Is something going to happen? We don't know. Uh, but a very interesting article, because there's conflict within the House of Saud, which is hardly news. There's been conflict in the House. When you have, you know, 64 sons, as the original king of Saudi Arabia had, um, there can be factions develop among your 64 sons. I think, had, I think it's 64 sons and like 37 daughters. Uh, so he was quite prolific, the original king of Saudi Arabia. He was also six foot, six foot eight or six foot ten. And I'm thinking in a battle on a horse, if you see a guy like that coming at you, that's intimidating. Um, but the react so what happens with the House of Saud? Everybody believes they may be the, one of the next ones to sign on. So who knows? We'll have to see. But you know, I think that as I go back to what I talked about a couple weeks ago, listen, this we're seeing this yearning for peace, even though it may ultimately have bad implications. Everybody wants peace. Everybody wants peace. Oh, great! We'll have a big ceremony and that type of thing. And maybe it's not exactly what it seems to be on the surface. There may be problems underneath. And the former head of the Mossad said, yeah, this, this could be problematic in the future. Uh, here's some reactions, and I'll finish up with this. This is from Ayatollah Khomeini's um, website, a tool for protecting the Zionist regime. Look at the uh, symbology in that uh, video. Uh, the betraying Arab government should know the U.S. is not trustworthy. The U.S. looks at them as tools for protecting the Zionist regime. And Khomeini gave a speech this week and talked about it. The other thing that was happening this week is this growing alliance between Turkey and um, Iran. There's an article from the Tehran Times. They're talking about cooperation. This is another article from Iran News. Tehran offers suggestions to accelerate trade with Ankara. And you see the way they're putting the pictures together? The Turkey and Iranian flag flying together? Yeah, I think this is pretty significant prophetically. We'll have to talk about that more in the future. Um, Wall Street Journal article again yesterday, the dangers of a new, a new era of territorial grabs. And this is what Erdogan's been doing. Uh, people are very concerned about that. Macron is stepping in for this uh, solution. The head, the Turkey uh, ambassador to the UN is now the president of the UN. He denies the Holocaust. I guess that's okay if you're running, you become president of the UN, you don't have to believe in the Holocaust. I, I just am shocked at the things that happen and nobody... Okay, so, so you get this much. Okay, and this is what I read each week, <laughs> and try to sift down, and there's a lot more going on, but I'm just, so I tried to bring you just the highlights. But here's an interesting, this is one of the foreign 
um, policy guys from the EU. Just listen to a minute of him, of what he says. This is what a big EU meeting about global peace and initiatives and all this. This is what he said. The subject of our discussion today is the preparation of the special European Council, but focusing on the dangerous escalation and the role of Turkey in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that's what I am going to try to do. Although, as the presidency of the Council has pointed out rightly, there are many other issues. Yesterday we had uh, this important high-level talk with China. And in general, we can say that Europe is facing that uh, a situation in which we can say that the, the empires are coming back. The old empires are coming back. There are at least three of them. We can say Russia, China, and Turkey, big empires in the past. They are coming back uh, with uh, an approach on their immediate neighborhood and globally, which represent for us a new environment. And Turkey is one of these elements that changes our environment. So this debate is very timely. I have to say that uh, tension has been continuing to rise over the summer. I've spent the last few months, including the summer, trying to facilitate the escalation efforts. But the least I can say is that more efforts are needed. The, the softest way of saying that uh, the situation has not been improving. Yeah, do, you, do you see what he's talking about? The rise of empires. Almost sounds like something out of Daniel. We need to talk about Daniel because I was thinking about this this week, but we don't have time to go into it because I have some things that, you know, Daniel's sitting there reading about the 70 years of captivity being over but he's got all these visions of this long scope of prophetic history that are probably rattling around in his brain. And I think maybe he was relieved when the angel said, Daniel, seal up the book until the time at the end. Don't worry about it. It'll work out. Um, we'll have to talk more about that. But one other thing that I think this is significant, we will target everyone involved in the Soleimani assassination. This was the front page of today's Tehran Times. And this article in Foreign Policy, Partition is the Only Solution to Lebanon's Woes. So, listen, the empires are rising, things are falling apart. Article in Foreign Policy, the loss of hope in the Middle East. And yet, there's the peace. It's incredible time to be alive. So, be glad that we live at this time and that we have an understanding of the framework of these things that are going to happen. But I will just say that um, I'm not, not trying to be a prophet, I'm just trying to be a pragmatic realist. We're in for a very bumpy ride over the next several months at least, and maybe longer. Uh, but God is faithful, God will protect us, and may all of these prophecies be fulfilled exactly to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for the day. Uh, pray that you will bless us this week, give us opportunities to share the gospel. But we really lift up, Pastor Steve, that you will 
uh, touch his body and heal him and restore him to good health. Um, please. In Jesus' name, amen.